I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at onepeloton.com. No one has seen a watermelon seed in years. Um, But in those days, they had plenty of seeds, and the ones you didn't swallow, you'd spit out. I just kind of kicked it into the dirt in this spot and returned three or four months later to find a vine cradling this watermelon. It was like the size of maybe a, a football. It was absolutely thrilling and shocking. And I made the connection. I had made this happen. And I promptly like broke off the vine and carried it running and screaming to show my mother in the house. I proceeded to trip and the watermelon squirted out of my arms and just splatted. That was a kind of formative moment for me. I don't run with produce anymore. Welcome to Your Mama's Kitchen, the podcast where we explore how the food and culinary traditions of our youth shape who we become as adults. I'm Michelle Norris. Our guest today is Michael Pollan, author, journalist, lecturer, and gatekeeper for good eating. His books include The Omnivore's Dilemma, In Defense of Food, and This Is Your Mind on Plants. Michael has spent a lifetime looking at the places where nature and culture intersect, in the grocery store, in our gardens and industrial farms, in restaurants and school lunch kitchens, and at our dinner table. As you can guess, he's a clean eater. Not much meat, not much dairy, sugar, or fried food. So I was a little bit surprised that when he went down memory lane to his mama's kitchen, his version of childhood comfort food was chicken a la Kiev. Yes, chicken a la Kiev. If you've never had this dish before, it's just as frilly and frou-frou and complicated as it sounds. Those who have had it, or even those adventurous enough to have made it, can appreciate the intricate, almost excruciating process it takes to bring this entree to life. This dish combines staples of classic American home cooking, like chicken, butter, and breadcrumbs, to create something elegant and elevated and deep-fried. It was a thing in the 1970s, and while not as popular now, it's rolled up in nostalgia. Usually you'd find Chicken Kiev being served on fancy china in a posh restaurant. But Michael was lucky enough to have it served up for a weeknight dinner growing up on Long Island. We learned a lot about Michael by learning about the sunny yellow kitchen that was the center of his life, the garden out back where he first put his hands into the soil, and the places that influenced the food guru who has changed the way Americans think about food and the places where it's grown, processed, packaged, and served up. We're serving up his story next. Michael Pollan, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much for making time for us. Oh, thank you, Michelle. I have always wanted to talk to you and I've never had a chance to, so... 
I know. I'm I'm kind of surprised our paths have not crossed, but this was such a wonderful concept. We think so too. And and it's a podcast that begins with a very simple question. Tell me about your mama's kitchen. What was it like? Take me back there. Close your eyes. Paint a picture for me. I mean, I've thought about it a lot and I've written about it. My mom was and is a, a wonderful cook and takes food very seriously and has since I was a little kid. I have, I have clear memories of her watching Julia Child on TV, which she, you know, was appointment television for her. And we were the lucky beneficiaries of that interest because she would, you know, there were just the four of us kids. My father was seldom at the dinner table. Long story, but basically he had a, a long commute and usually had leftovers later, often after we went to sleep. So it was really the four kids and her. But she wanted to cook serious things. So we would have Julia Child's Buff Bourguignon on a Thursday, <laughs> which we didn't fully appreciate. Who has appreciate time at for that? Time. That's amazing. It, it was amazing, but she was hardcore. Um, so we had family dinner every night, except on the weekends. They would often go out Friday or Saturday, and we would get to have TV dinners, which was a great treat. We love TV dinners. And then Saturday night, we'd often order in. During the week, six o'clock on the dot, we would be home for dinner. And she had a kind of rotation of dishes that she would prepare. We could kind of assume on Tuesday it would be pasta. On Thursday would be beef. Wednesday would often be chicken, but a variety of different chicken dishes. I loved her cooking. And I think my sisters did too. Although eventually two of them became vegetarians, which complicated the whole picture. Was this when they were still in the house in high school? Oh, yeah. Pretty early. They must have been 12 or 13. My mother was very accommodating, though. She would make something different for them. But before that, we all both figuratively and literally ate from the same pot. And that, I think, is just a, such a wonderful tradition, you know, because it, it does a lot. It's metaphorical as well as literal. It gets everybody on the same page psychologically, I think, when we share food. She would also let us help in the kitchen or sometimes require us to. I mean, there were jobs. You, you had to set the table, clean up after, or you could help in the preparation. And I loved helping in the preparation. I just thoroughly enjoyed the, all the processes of transformation that happen in a kitchen and these miracles of transubstantiation that happened, you know, from raw pieces of, you know, meat and a few vegetables suddenly emerging as something quite wonderful and magical. I want to get back to the family meal in just a bit, but I want to learn a little bit more about the space where your mother made this magic. What did her kitchen look like? What kind of stove did she have? Did you have a kitchen renovation when you were young or was it a fancy kitchen? When I was six, we moved into a new house uh, in a development in the suburbs. This is suburban New York on Long Island in the town of Woodbury. So everything was brand new at that time. There was a new stove I remember the appliances were yellow, which is a very popular 60s color for appliances. You don't see it very much anymore. So I think the fridge was yellow, but the stove and range, I remember being yellow. It was very modern feeling. My mother was very up on design and still is. And so there was a, um, a kitchen table, a kind of a breakfast table that was near the phone, which was on the wall. And this table was kind of some sort of plastic or resin, and it was white. And that's where we would have breakfast or if we were home for lunch. The sink faced the front of the house, which was very shaded and wooded. There was a 
double-trunked oak tree that you could see outside this window. But we ate in the dining room, and that was uh, a separate room, and there was a swinging door that opened onto the dining room. And we ate at this big Nakashima table. Nakashima is a, a famous furniture designer from the 60s, and we had this beautiful piece of walnut table where we ate. Now, your mother was a working woman. She edited the Best Bet section of New York Magazine. and Yeah, for 17 years. I still meet people who remember the Best Bets column, and uh, she was really an institution in New York when she was running that. And she edited Gourmet Magazine also. So she was working and still making time to make dinner. Do you marvel at that now? Absolutely. Her energy is extraordinary. I mean, she made Passover for 25 people. She didn't make every dish. We chipped in, but she made the brisket, she made the chicken, and she made the matzo ball soup over the course of two weeks. Uh, Very stressful, but she got it done, and it was all delicious, although not all to her standard. She's highly self-critical of her cooking, and she's still chewing over why the gravy on the brisket was as thin as it was and how she could course correct for next year. Was the gravy actually thinner than she wanted to be, or is that part of the <laughs> performance of cooking? Oh, no, no, no. Everyone loved it. The grandkids, she's got 11 grandchildren. They all took home as much as they could for leftovers. No, it was purely her. She has the platonic ideal of that sauce, the relationship of the meat and the sauce and the continuity between the two, and it was broken. She has some theories as to why, and we did quite an autopsy over it, actually, in discussion. An autopsy? Yes. So, <laughs> After-action report? You had exactly, to do, like, forensics exactly. afterwards? And I think we figured out the problem. But, you know, she makes extensive notes from one holiday to the next, exactly how long she cooked the turkey for Thanksgiving, at what temperature, when did she take it out. She has this kind of playbook for these big she meals. She has a playbook. Say more about that. Is it, well, is it electronic she, or is it an no, actual no, folder? No, it's all in her handwriting. And after a big meal... What a meal, treasure. Yeah, she would sit down and make notes. What worked, what didn't work. Were the potatoes on it crispy enough? If they weren't, why not? She holds herself to a very high standard. When I ask about your kitchen, I feel like I should not just ask about the space where the cooking was done, but maybe look through the kitchen window and imagine the garden just outside because Mm. you were very influenced by the garden and you had something, I guess you called it the farm. I did. That was in back of the house. I was one of the producers supplying food to this kitchen. (laughs) on the order of like three strawberries at a time, nothing major. But yes, I, from a very young age, started gardening. I loved gardening. I had a grandfather, my mother's father, who was a uh, Russian immigrant, could not read, was totally uneducated. And he started out selling produce on a street corner in Hempstead, New York. He would sell baked potatoes and then more produce. And then he gradually had a market selling produce. And then he was a um, distributor and he got some contracts with the military during World War II, and he was supplying to the military bases on Long Island. When the farmers started selling out, he started buying their land and started doing real estate, and he built uh, strip malls, you know, was generally involved in despoiling the Long Island landscape after supporting his farmers for as long as they could hold out. I had kind of tense relations with him. He thought I was kind of a hippie, I wore my hair long and I had a leather bracelet that I wore that just drove him absolutely crazy. He was a very conservative man. But we could connect in the garden. And he had a beautiful, big garden, much bigger than it needed to be. 
it was just him and my grandmother, but he grew like a, a truck farmer's amount of produce, which he would, you know, load into his Lincoln in the trunk and give it out to his tenants as he drove around Long Island. My happiest moments at my grandparents' house was in the garden, and especially around harvest. I still find it's thrilling to find a ripe red tomato under that canopy of leaves or, a, or pull a carrot out of the earth. It still amazes me. And I learned that from him. I mean, I garden in a different way. He, there was no pesticide he didn't love. I mean, he had <laughs> Scott's miracle Grow and all their allied products. So he wasn't an organic grower, but his produce was beautiful. He would also always grow the variety you could get in the supermarket, where I tend to grow the variety you can't get in the supermarket. Mm -hmm. So he would have big beefsteak tomatoes and globe eggplants, and it looked just like a really good produce section. Mm. So, yeah, my interest in food goes back to that. I mean, it really goes back. The first encounter I had with growing food was when I was four years old. And this is when we lived in a house on the south shore of Long Island in a neighborhood of just kind of very tiny row houses. It was a working class neighborhood and there was a hedge behind our house and the property line was behind that a couple feet. And I loved watermelon and I um, spit out some watermelon seeds and kind of buried them to see if anything would happen. Completely forgot about them. This Wait, happened. You were four when you did this? Yeah, four. You know, I'd heard this story about seeds turned into things and that watermelon, you know, there was always, remember when you ate watermelon as a kid and you swallowed the seeds, you, there was this kind of concern it might start growing in your stomach. Well, you have to pause for a minute because watermelons actually had seeds back then because yes, so much that's of right. No one has seen a watermelon seed in years. <laughs> Good point. Um, but in those days, they had plenty of seeds and uh, the ones you didn't swallow, you'd spit out. And I just kind of kicked it into the dirt in this spot and returned three or four months later to find a vine cradling this watermelon. It wasn't huge. It was like the size of maybe a, a football. And it was absolutely thrilling and shocking. And I made the connection. I had made this happen. And I promptly like broke off the vine and carried it running and screaming to show my mother in the house. But between the, the door to the house and the hedge where I was, was a concrete patio <laughs> where I proceeded to trip and the watermelon squirted out of my oh, arms no. and just splatted. That was a kind of formative moment for me. I don't run with produce anymore. But it was, you know, it was, that's where I had my proof that, yes, you could really put seeds in the ground and get something you wanted. And isn't this miraculous? Your mother was taking on some big, sophisticated dishes at a time when a lot of women were looking to get out of the kitchen. Why do you think she did that? I mean, my mother, you know, became a career woman, and she always had aspirations. She'd been in college. She was a very serious student of literature and a big, big reader. I don't know that she saw cooking as oppressive as some women did or came to. That would be a really interesting question to ask her. For her, it was a creative outlet. And I think for a lot of women then, the, you know, the women who were watching Julia Child— they were cooking. That was a real thing. It was a huge thing at the it time. It was like appointment viewing. Yeah. And I remember I would watch it with her sometimes. I mean, I thought it was kind of hilarious. And, and Julia Child, you know, she had that crazy voice. And she made an intimidating cuisine unintimidating. I mean, because she was a bit goofy, but it was serious French cooking. 
Translating that from what she saw on TV or read in the books, the cookbooks, to our table was a process that was very creative for her. Did she send you to school with a bag lunch? Not always. Weirdly, I really liked the food at school. What school did you go to? I went to a public a public school and with and good food. Was it really good food? I, I'm dubious, but at the time, I liked it. I liked. I mean, I didn't like the hamburgers. They had strange mm-hmm. materials oozing out of them, exuding. But I loved the pasta and spaghetti and pizza and sloppy joes uh, and Salisbury steak, which is a very dubious <laughs> product. My sisters and I had certain favorites at school, and we would ask my mother to simulate the school food. And she would. She took that as a challenge, uh, akin to, you know, making a Julia Child recipe. And she would make us Salisbury steak or chicken fried steak was something that they had. And she was game. And we would tell her, ah, it's not quite as good as Walt Whitman. That was the school we went to. And she just rolled with that. Not quite as good as she did the school lunch. <laughs> you have to understand, my mother was what we would call quite permissive. There was very little we could do that she had a problem with. We had a, a, a unusual degree of freedom. There's a lot of things that happen in the kitchen that have nothing to do with food that also shape us. Was there anything that happened in your kitchen that you look back and see shaped you in an, an interesting way that had nothing to do with food and the subject of your life's work now? I mean, there was a lot of talk in the kitchen when my mother was cooking. I loved hanging around in the kitchen when she was cooking. I particularly loved it when her mother came over and they would cook together and make strudel and things like that. My mother's mother cooked a completely different cuisine that my mother had grown up. One of the peculiarities, I think, of American culture compared to other cultures is we don't eat the way our parents fed us and they fed us in a way their parents didn't feed them. I mean, that every generation, the food changes. And in my case, it was an immigrant generation to a first full American generation to me. And foodways in America are very fungible. I mean, they're changing every generation. We don't eat the way people did 20, 30, 40 years ago. And that's a positive and a negative. It's a negative in the sense that we don't have a stabilizing food culture. People in Italy, you know, have been eating the same way for many, many generations. Ditto in France. And, you know, yes, junk food finds its way in and fast food, but what is considered a proper meal uh, hasn't changed. Whereas my mother grew up eating, you know, parts of cows that I would never consider eating. They ate udders. You know, that was considered a delicacy. They didn't have a lot of money and sweetbreads and all sorts of weird glands and... Tongue. Yeah, tongue. My dad loved tongue. And I don't eat all those foods I'm describing that my mother cooked with the exception of, you know, pasta. You know, I don't make beef stews. I don't I don't make fried chicken. But there was the continuity when my grandmother Mary came and she and my mother would often, you know, hang out in the kitchen or cook in the kitchen. And I loved listening to conversations. The other set of memories I have about the kitchen is, as I mentioned, my dad was missing from most of our family dinners because he worked in Manhattan. He had this like, I don't know, hour and a half, two hour commute. That's a long time. Very long time. And he would get up very early to leave. And the only time I could have with him during the week, and I loved being with him, was while he was having breakfast. So I would actually drag myself out of bed at like 6 or 6.30 or whatever time it was and sit down and have coffee with him. And so as a result, I started drinking coffee at a very young age. (laughs) 
And I've had a lifelong relationship with coffee. I don't know how old I was, eight or 10, but. And he let you drink coffee with him at eight or 10. Did you? I'm telling you, I had a very permissive parents. Loads of sugar in it? Uh, Yeah, definitely loads of sugar and milk. And because, you know, kids don't like the taste of coffee. They have to, they have to domesticate it. But anyway, that was precious time to be in that kitchen with my dad. My sisters wouldn't be up, up late. My mother wouldn't be in the kitchen yet. And that was our, you know, our one-on-one time. I mean, we had some on the weekends too, but that was key time growing up. Did your dad ever cook? Because you've written that men need to get back in the kitchen. Yes, they sure do. And he was not a good model in this regard. He would grill, you know, the classic male. Yes, where fire is involved, men will cook. (laughs) (laughs) But he was terrible at it. I mean, he would, yeah, he would burn things and... My mother never knew that whether there'd be food on the table when he was grilling. Uh, he just wasn't very good at it. I mean, I, I learned a little bit about it and I love grilling and I would help him to the extent I could. So we spent summers on Martha's Vineyard when I was young. Um, they built a house there in 1965 and we'd go to the beach every day as a family with friends. And at least once a week, he would schlep a grill down there to make a hot meal on the beach. This was so much trouble because then you had to bring the bag of briquettes You had all the hot dogs and the hamburgers. My mother would make coleslaw. And we would have a cookout at like noon on the beach. It was like, I can't imagine ever doing that. And he would cook with my help there. Little hibachi grill? It was a big grill. Oh, really? It wasn't? It was like a regular Oh, no, no, no. It wasn't hibachi. It was like, it wasn't. (laughs) I mean, we didn't have those kettle grills then. It was rectangular, but it was pretty big. And uh, yeah, it just seemed like an awful lot of trouble when a peanut butter and jelly sandwich would have done the trick. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. You're listening to the Audible original, Your Mama's Kitchen. Like what you're hearing? The next episode is available now exclusively from Audible. Visit audible.com slash kitchen and hit the follow button for the latest episodes each week. You can listen to new episodes on Audible two weeks before you can hear them anywhere else. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. I love to be able to cook in a kitchen and have a good meal with the people I care about all around me. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen at a big island. And we were able to all get in and do our thing together and sit down in the adjoining dining room and have a long, loud meal and then clean up afterwards and continue the conversation. I loved being able to do that. And Airbnb allowed that to happen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. 
Hosting your home on Airbnb is a great way to make some extra money. It's very practical as a side hustle. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. What is it that you've cooked that you think perhaps delights... How many kids do you have? Just one. Just one. Your son, right? Yes. Isaac. So what have you made for your son, Isaac, that delights him the same way a dish from your mom delighted you? So my son is a big meat eater. And when I was writing Cooked, which is my book about cooking, I really got into Southern barbecue. And I spent time in North Carolina and I apprenticed myself to pit masters. And I started cooking that way at home. And in fact, we have a fire pit in our garden in the front of our house. And once a year or so, we would do a whole pig. I'd get, often my students, I would have a group of students and and we'd invite them all over. And it was a 24-hour cook because you had to, you started it around dinner time and then someone had to watch it all night. We took turns watching it and my son would participate because he wanted to cook very slowly at a you know very low temperature, but obviously not too low. And Isaac loved that meat. And it was pretty extraordinary. And he would help out. And, you know, and then there's the process of getting the meat off the animal and shredding it and mixing in the 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 apple cider vinegar and whatever else you were putting in it. I would say that was his favorite meal that we ever cooked. It was very special occasion. Then there was the kind of miniaturized version of that that I learned how to do, which was a a slow-cooked pork shoulder that I would cover in in sugar and salt and then cook very slowly on the grill and then shred it. Sort of like the momofuku recipe. Yes, and in fact, I did work from that recipe sometimes. I love that recipe. When did you start cooking more for yourself? Was it somewhere along the line when you began writing more about food and agriculture? And when you did start cooking, how much of your mother's hand was in that? After college, I lived in this apartment where I was growing some pot on 110th Street in Manhattan. We would get ravioli from a store in New York called Raffetto's that has just, has always had for the last 60 years, the best ravioli. Uh, spinach and cheese. And then my idea of a fancy meal, if I had friends over, uh, would be to melt some butter and then put some sage leaves in it and then serve that over that ravioli. And that was it. It was pretty simple. When Judith and I started living together, we, you know, she brought her recipes. I had some I had learned from my mom and we would, we started cooking regularly. You know, in New York, in your early apartments, you don't really have a very good kitchen. You don't even have a kitchen. I mean, in my apartment, 110th Street, there were these louvered doors that I would open and there would be this two burner range and a little refrigerator and it was not easy to cook. There was no counter space, for example. You had to use the table, the dining table, as a place to chop stuff. I think it's really, we got serious about cooking when we uh, got this house in Connecticut. This was in the early 80s, and there weren't a lot of good restaurants around, or they were all too far away. And there we got much more serious about cooking and started looking at cookbooks and figuring out what we like to eat. And I I then put in a big garden, and we would eat from the garden all the time. And how much of your mother's hand was in that when you started doing the serious cooking? Well, the fact I was doing serious cooking at all is all her hand. I mean, you know, that I, I took it seriously and had a little bit of technique I learned from her 
So it definitely had an influence. As I said, I, I don't know that I was making the same dishes, but she wasn't either. She had moved on too. I mean, she, you know, she had started after trips to Italy, you know, the focus on French cuisine gave way to Italian, as it did in the whole culture at a certain point, right? It used to be in Manhattan, if you were a person in a certain class you and you wanted to go out for a nice meal, it was always French, uh, 60s and into the 70s. And then suddenly it was Italian. Right. Northern Italian in particular. Yeah, Northern Italian, exactly. So you've done research, you've traveled the world. You can learn a little bit about a culture if you look at where people cook. You know, and it's not always in a kitchen. Sometimes it's over, you know, it's a pot over a flame. It's, um, as you say, you know, a pig in, in the ground in the backyard with coals on top. Yeah. What do we learn about America by looking at our kitchens and the way we cook and particularly looking backwards over our shoulder and the kitchens that we grew up in? How has it shaped a generation of people? I think the kitchen in America is is going unused to a, to a tremendous extent, that these have become rooms of display, you know, with the fancy stoves and the fridges. And they are approaching, you know, this professional level with all the, and I'm, I'm speaking of pretty affluent kitchens, obviously, but with all the fancy gear, yet they're used less and less. And, you know, we are not cooking at home very much. Um, there was an uptick during COVID, but I think we've fallen back on habits of ordering, you know, ordering in, going out. Um, the family meal is an endangered institution. You know, I've written about this because it concerns me. We learn very important things at that table. You know, I, I don't exaggerate when I say that the, the family dinner and that table is a nursery of democracy because it is at that table that the family comes together, which otherwise is quite centrifugal, right? Everybody's in their own room on their own screens now. They're, they're, they don't watch TV together anymore. So it's at that table that we learn how to share, talk about the news of the day. I, I have vivid memories of uh, when my dad was at the table talking about the Vietnam War and what was going on. And we learn to take turns. We learn how to argue without fighting. There'd be penalties, you know, if you said something awful at the table to your sister, um, you'd, have, you'd be exiled. So I just think they're so important. They teach people about a lot more than eating, but they also teach people about eating. What is real food as opposed to all this other stuff that now represents about 60% or 65% of the American diet, ultra-processed foods of one kind or another. I understand why we stopped cooking. You know, the fact that as women went back to work, the old system was untenable, but there was another solution. And that, of course, was a renegotiation of responsibility in the household between men and women. And that conversation, which started in the 70s, and I remember it, and there was a source of some tension in our house, was aborted by the fast food industry, who saw an opportunity that they could relieve the tension of men and women arguing about responsibility. And the best symbol of this I know of was a billboard that Kentucky Fried Chicken ran around the country in the 1970s. And all it was was a bucket of fried chicken and the headline, Women's Liberation. So the food industry aligned themselves with the aspirations of women as the solution to this problem. There was another solution, but it didn't lend itself to capitalism quite as well. <laughs> And that other solution, of course, was sharing the work when it becomes much less oppressive 
and more fun. I mean, my wife and I cook together and we figure out at the beginning of the meal who's going to make what. And we stand around the same table. And that's when we review, you know, what happened in our day and our plans for the weekend or whatever else it is. And that is like our catch up time. And it's precious. We have a habit here. We try to give our listeners a recipe in every episode. And Michael wanted to share the fancy, laborious, homemade chicken dish that his mom, Corky, made for special weeknight dinners. The dish that she taught me to make that became my signature dish was chicken a la Kiev. Which just sounds fancy. I know, it it does sound fancy. It sounds like it should be served on a beautiful china platter. And it was. And this was something we would have like birthdays. And I would ask for it on my birthday, but I would I would cook it, I mean, with her. And it was a very elaborate process uh, because you, you started with chicken breasts that you had to pound until they were about a quarter inch even, you know, between layers of wax and what, paper. And did she have that metal, a mallet, I mean, that, yes. that little wooden mallet that she would yep. use or was she it metal? She had the mallet, yeah. And you had to do that. But if you hit it too hard, you'd have holes. And then that, for reasons you'll see in a minute, that was a disaster. You had to, because you had to create a tight seal. And then you would take this, you know, piece of paper that was really chicken breast. In advance, you'd made these little bars of butter that had herbs and garlic in it and that you'd refrigerated after you made them. And you would roll one of these and tuck in the ends very carefully and then roll the, the whole thing in, which looked like a devil dog or something, which was a popular snack at the time. And you'd roll that in flour and then roll that in egg, and then roll that in breadcrumbs, and then you would deep fat fry it. And we had a fryolator, a plug-in fryolator. Oh my goodness, a fryolator. I haven't heard that word in so long. <laughs> I know. I don't think they have them anymore. <laughs> They're probably fire hazards, I think. Maybe they were banned. I don't know. Um, and then you would fry it, and it would get this beautiful golden color. And you'd watch very carefully because something could go wrong. And what that wrong was, was the leaking of the melting butter inside. So you had to handle it very gently with a slotted spoon. And and, um, and when it worked, you would take it out and put it on some paper towelings to get, to get some of the fat off. And then you would slice into it. And this aroma of garlic and herbs would waft up. And then this pool of butter would like surround this thing on your plate. It was the most magical thing. I just loved it. I loved everything about it. The mechanics, the taste, the process. And she taught me that out of Julia Child. And I have not made it in, I think I made it for my wife and son once. I don't eat chicken anymore. I don't eat butter anymore. It's just like so far beyond how I eat now. But at the time, there was no higher. And I and my parents once took me to Russian Tea Room and I got to have their version and it was no better. No better than your mom's? No. My mom's was the best. It'd be great if one day we could share a meal together. That would be great, Michelle. I would enjoy that. Thanks so much for your time. Oh, my pleasure. You know, Michael's right. The kitchen is a magnet. It holds people together. It's where we catch up on mundane updates. It's where we argue. And yes, it is, as he says, a nursery for democracy. I love that line. Because we stay at the table with people we don't agree with. We learn how to listen to other people. We learn how to give and take. And what we take away from all those experiences, if we're lucky, stays inside us for a lifetime. 
Thanks for listening to Your Mama's Kitchen. I'm Michelle Norris. Come back next week. This has been a Higher Ground and Audible original produced by Higher Ground Studios. Senior producer Natalie Wren, producer Sonia Tun, and associate producer Angel Carreras. Sound design and engineering from Andrew Epen and Roy Baum. Higher Ground Audio's editorial assistants are Jenna Levin and Camilla Thurdicus. Executive producers for Higher Ground are Nick White, Mukta Mohan, Dan Fearman, and me, Michelle Norris. Executive producers for Audible are Zola Mashariki, Nick D'Angelo, and Ann Hepperman. The show's closing song is 504 by The Soul Rebels. Editorial and web support from Melissa Baer and Say What Media. Our talent booker is Angela Peluso and head of Audible Studios, Zola Mashariki, chief content officer, Rachel Giazza. And special thanks this week to the good people at Clean Cuts in Washington, D.C. And that's it. Goodbye, everybody. See what we're serving up next week. Copyright 2023 by Higher Ground Audio, LLC. Sound recording copyright 2023 by Higher Ground Audio, LLC. Higher Ground. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com